You can see in your bulletin that we're turning now to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians 7, our theme in this sermon series has been the habits of grace. We seek the grace of God, and He graciously grants us to experience it as we seek and serve Him in these habitual ways, in these regular ways, the habits of grace. And we've been talking lately about things like Bible reading and prayer, and meditation. We want it to be the case that we're the kind of people who live like that during the week. It's not just a Sunday thing. We want to be the kind of people who read God's Word, and who think about it, and who talk to Him in prayer in the light of it. Well, one of the many reasons why we want to be that kind of people is that that is how we leave sin behind. And God has worked in our hearts that very desire. We read God's word, we think about it, we talk to him in prayer in the light of it, because that is how we learn about our own sin so that we can turn away from it. In a word, that is how we practice repentance. The R word, repentance, this morning. Here in the sermon series, we're talking about the habits of grace. Well, repentance is one of them. It's not a habit in the sense that we can schedule it daily, but it is a habit in the sense that turning away from sin back to God involves flexing spiritual muscles that we need to be using regularly. It's a habit of grace. So this is a good word for us to heed today, a word about repentance. And that's why we're turning to 2 Corinthians 7, because this is a great place to go when we think about the reality of repentance, turning from sin back to God as as an aspect of the Christian life. So I will begin reading for us chapter 7, verse 2. Let me give you a little bit of background here so that we can better appreciate what we're about to hear together. The Greek city of Corinth, where these Christians live that Paul's writing to, the Greek city of Corinth, it was one of the great cities of the Greco-Roman world. The gospel had already made its way there. A Christian church had already been established there in that great city. Well, apparently, prior to the writing of this letter, Paul had visited Corinth because he'd heard that there was some trouble there in that church. And apparently, piecing together the clues, apparently the visit did not go well. It was painful. It was painful for everybody. It was painful in part because Paul himself was mistreated by somebody in that church, and the rest of the church didn't take a stand against that sin in the way that they should have. And so after he left, after this visit that was confrontational, that was unpleasant, Paul had to write them a hard follow-up letter in which he told them in no uncertain terms that they needed to repent. 
and they needed to take action with respect to the sin in their midst. And, and he urged that of them, not for his own glory, not simply because he left Corinth feeling like he'd been personally offended, but because it was important for the sake of the gospel that this congregation rise up and rally and respond rightly to sin in their ranks. They needed to repent and take action. Well, again, apparently, happily they did. It was a painful visit, and then it was a hard letter that he had to write, but happily, it looks like it all bore fruit. Because Paul's writing this letter, 2 Corinthians, at a time when he's gotten the good news that that hard follow-up letter that he had to write worked. They had repented. And yet he still feels like he needs to, to plead with them. To, to love him as he has loved them. And all of that comes out here. So listen now, 2 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. This is the word of God. Let's pray together now.
Father, we thank you for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. It is remarkable for us to look back into history as this passage allows us to get a glimpse of what his ministry was like to the Christians in Corinth. And yet for us, this is no mere history lesson. For we hear these words today as your word to us. Here you speak to us. And that becomes our prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There once was a man named Hermann Rorschach. And just by me saying his name, you can probably guess what his contribution was in the history of psychology. You probably won't be surprised to hear that it was Hermann Rorschach who came up with the so-called Rorschach test. And you know how it works. You know how the test goes. You look at an image, and it is a deliberately ambiguous image. And the way that you personally interpret and respond to the image speaks volumes about what's going on in your own heart and mind. It's telling. It's revealing. Well, you can do that with images. In a sense, you can do that with words. I can put a word in front of you on a piece of paper or maybe up on a screen. And if it's a word that elicits a wide variety of actions, well, the same phenomenon plays out. The way that you personally interpret and respond to that word speaks volumes about what's in your own heart and mind. It's telling, it's revealing. Well, I say that because the word repentance is one of those words. And I, I mean not just here in this room this morning, but thinking, thinking more broadly, thinking culturally. The mere mention of that word repentance, if you say that word out loud, If you say it out loud so that everybody can hear it, the reactions to that word vary widely. The perception of that idea, the idea of repentance. For a lot of people, the very word repentance is a dark word. It's an offensive word. It's a comical word. But for those who know better, for those who know God, it is a brilliant word. And it's beautiful, and it's weighty, because we've been given eyes to see, we've been given ears to hear. For a lot of people, the idea of repentance means loss and death, and it's to be dismissed, it's to be laughed away, but for those who know better, it means gain and life, and it is to be celebrated. One word can sound so differently in different ears. We see it as something to be celebrated. Obviously, it's not a happy thing that we have to repent, and we're looking forward to the world to come where we won't have to repent anymore. But in this life, in this world, it's a blessing that we get to, that we get to turn away from sin and go back to God. 
It's a blessing that God calls us to it and doesn't leave us as we are. God doesn't leave us where we are. It's a blessing that he calls us back to himself and he enables us to hear and heed that very call. And and there are few places in the whole of the Bible where that comes through as clearly as it does here in 2 Corinthians 7, especially verse 10. In in the whole passage that I read for us this morning, it's verse verse 10 especially that shines the glorious reality that is repentance, the brilliance and the beauty and the weightiness of it. So we are going to get out our magnifying glasses and focus on verse 10. But before we do, let's notice again where that one verse is situated. Back up to verse 5. Look again at what Paul says beginning at verse 5. And he's talking about how he's on his way to Corinth. He's not there yet. He's still in the region of Macedonia, which was to the north of it. Verse 5. Even when we came into Macedonia... Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So what Paul's telling them there, is that it had been a cause of great joy for him when he got the good news from Titus that the Corinthians had repented in the way that they should have. As I was saying before, Paul apparently had written them some hard letter in which he told them to repent. And here he's describing what it was like when Titus comes to him with the good news that they had repented. You can practically hear and feel the sigh of relief that emanates from this page in your Bible. It was good news. And then let's keep going. Look at verse 8. Paul reflects upon everything that led to this. Verse 8. He says, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while, as it is I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. So there's Paul reflecting upon what his relationship to these Christians has been like. He's saying, yes, it was a hard thing for him that he had to write the letter that he did in the first place when he told them that they needed to repent. But he's also saying it was worth it. It was worth it because God used that hard letter to bring you back. It was worth it because God used that letter that I wrote to work into your souls a grief that was godly, which is the best kind of grief. And then he he picks up on that and he keeps going. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, 
but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. So what Paul's telling them there is that they needed to see, perhaps in a way that they had not seen, perhaps in a way that they had not noticed, they needed to see what had just happened in their own lives and in the life of their own church. He wanted them to appreciate what had just unfolded. Yes, he'd written them that hard letter, and it worked. It worked because what he wanted was for their own genuineness to show and shine. That's what he wanted more than anything else, and that's exactly what unfolded. Because that's the way that they responded. They responded with genuineness and earnestness and longing and zeal and all the rest. So that's, that's what unfolds here in this passage as a whole. But it's verse 10 especially that I want us to latch on to. Verse 10 Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. One of the things that's so wonderful about this one verse is the way it fills out our understanding of the whole experience of repentance. Repentance boils down to turning away from sin back to God. Listen to the way it's defined in our shorter catechism. So our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And I love the fact that even in the question it says, unto life. Question, what is repentance unto life? And our catechism answers, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's what repentance amounts to, turning from sin back to God. So think of it this way. Verse 10 in our passage, it tells us what leads up to that turning and then where that turning leads you. In other words, it gives us the before and the after of turning back to God. And let's think about those two. Let's make those our two main points. We'll call them what lies behind and what lies ahead, those two points. What lies behind repentance as the cause of it, and then what lies ahead of repentance as the result of it. Because those are both vital when it comes to repentance. What lies behind and what lies ahead. It would be like if you're going on a road trip and, and you're humming along down the highway and somebody else is driving. And so before long, you're sound asleep. And after a while, you wake up. And after you wake up, at first you think you're reading the signs wrong. Because before you fell asleep, the signs said that you were driving east. Now that you've woken up, the signs are saying that you're heading west. And it takes a few moments for you as you wake up. You, you rub your eyes, and sure enough, 
you've seen the signs correctly. They're now saying that you're heading west. And in that moment, you've got several questions for your driver. And surely two of those questions are these. Why did we turn around? And where are we going now? That's what you want to know. Those two points. Because if you can get answers to those two questions, then it'll make sense. Why did we turn around? And where are we going now? In other words, what lay behind your decision to get us going in the other direction? And what's our new destination now that you've made that change? If you can get answers to those two questions, then it'll make sense. And sure enough, Paul's answering those two questions here about repentance. So that repentance makes sense. What lies behind it and what lies ahead of it. So first of all, what lies behind repentance leading to it? And the answer is grief. A godly grief over your own sin. And that's what Paul's saying here about the Corinthians. He's saying, yes, my, my earlier letter, my hard letter caused you to feel that kind of grief. And that is what led you to your repentance. Godly grief over sin, to feel that kind of grief, means that the main thing that bothers you about your sin, the main thing that most breaks your heart about your sin, is that it was against God. Because ultimately, essentially, that's what sin is. Sin is some kind of opposition to God. It's some kind of failure to honor God. And to feel a godly grief about sin means that that's the main thing that bothers you about it. It's like in Psalm 51, where David says, against you, he's he's saying this to God in prayer, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, David knew very well that his sin had wrecked several human lives. David knew that he had sinned against many other people by his adultery and murder. And yet still he could say to God in prayer against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He could say that because he knew that even when there's earthly fallout from our sin. Even when there's human pain caused by our sin. Ultimately, our sin is against God. And that's the worst thing about it. And godly grief over sin is to feel that. That doesn't mean that you're not thinking about other people at all. Just like David, you're well aware of the pain that you've caused other people by your sin. And there is a grief in that. But the point is, even that is something that you feel with God in view, with God in mind. And that's because it's God himself, and your eyes are on him, it's God himself who calls you to love others, and to bless others, and to serve others. And you didn't. You hurt them instead by your sin. You sent harmful waves crashing into their lives And even that was a failure to honor God, and your eyes are on him who is the God of love. It's that kind of grief that lies behind repentance, real repentance, deep, 
genuine repentance. If you don't really have God in view in the way that you're bothered about your sin, then whatever repentance you exhibit, whatever turning around that takes place, it's going to be relatively shallow. It's the person whose grief has to do chiefly with God, whose grief is heavenly, and therefore his turning is as well. And and I want to pause there and, and press this first point home. What lies behind repentance? Answer, a godly grief over our sin. Let's press that home. This is an aspect of the Christian life. Christian, this is an aspect of your life, to be heartbroken like this. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. This is an aspect of the Christian life, to feel this kind of grief. And if you find that you're going through life these days largely unbothered by your sin, then I want to urge you today, do not settle for that. And the thing to counteract that is to get to know God again in your own Bible reading, in your own conversations with fellow believers, in the way that you hear sermons, whatever it is, open your eyes again to the glory of God, His majesty, His kindness, His wisdom, His justice, because He's the one ultimately that you are sinning again. And that is what makes it grievous. That is what makes your sin heartbreaking. This God whom you're sinning against, who is now, as we sang earlier, your Father. Works that way on a human level. If I drive carelessly and I cut off a perfect stranger in traffic, I'm bothered by that. I'm bothered by my own sin. I've wronged this person that I don't even know and they don't know me. But if I speak a careless, hurtful word at home to somebody in my own family, it bothers me more. It grieves me more deeply. Why? Because I know them. And I'm known by them. And I know that they're kind and that I haven't been. I should be grieved more deeply by that. And that's why I say, Christian, get to know God. Get to know God who is your Father, the God who knows you and who loves you like a father, this God who is kind and holy. And then, by the grace of God, you'll realize again that your heart ought to break when you dishonor a God like that, who is your Father now. It's that godly grief with your eyes on God, your Father. That's what lies behind repentance leading to it. And then that brings us to the second of our two points today, which is what lies ahead. We've just focused on what lies behind repentance, what leads to it, that kind of godly grief. Now what lies ahead of it? In other words, what's the result of it? And Paul says it right there in our verse, in verse 10. He says, repentance leads to salvation. That's where you'll wind up 
salvation. And that's true in a number of ways. How is it that turning away from sin back to God leads to salvation? Let me mention three ways in which that's true. First of all, it's true in the sense that when you turn away from sin back to God, you are forgiven. And forgiveness is itself an aspect of salvation, and not just one of them, but one of the sweetest of them. You turn away from sin back to God in confessing your sin, and you find that He forgives you, which is an aspect of salvation. And then secondly, we can say it's true in the sense that when you turn away from sin back to God, you're coming back to a God who's determined to change you, to set you free from the power of sin. And that, too, is an aspect of salvation. God saves us by not leaving us as we are, but actually changing us from the inside out. And then one more. Repentance leads to salvation in the sense that when you turn away from sin back to God, you're you're setting your feet back on that pilgrim pathway, that pathway that leads to heaven and the world to come. And that world will be salvation with a capital S, salvation in all of its fullness. And so Paul can say here that repentance leads to salvation. We can sum all three of them up by saying that repentance leads to salvation because it leads you to Christ. Christ in whom there is forgiveness. Christ by whom we are changed. Christ in whom there is the hope of the world to come because he's gone there to prepare it for us. So Paul can say here that repentance leads to salvation. And I love how he puts it here because he says it leads to salvation without regret. Without regret. Of all the things that you'd think Paul would not have to say in this passage, surely it would be, well, you know, if you end up saved, you won't look back and regret it. We might think, no kidding, of course, You're not going to regret it when you experience the very salvation of God. It's salvation. Who's going to regret turning around to be saved? Does Paul really need to say that here? Well, in one sense, sure, it's needless to say. But as we've noticed before, sometimes it's the things that are needless to say that we most need to hear and hear again. When you've come back to God, No one in his right mind is going to say, what was I thinking? I want a do-over. When you've come back to God, no one in his right mind is going to say, well, I blew it. I've been robbed. I've come out on the losing side. I mean, just imagine the absurdity of it. Can you imagine somebody saying in heaven, what was I thinking? Of course you can But that's the point. The very absurdity of it ought to get our attention. The very absurdity of the notion that anyone would regret turning away from sin to be saved from it, that ought to remind us that we are no fools to have committed ourselves to a life that's shaped by it. Salvation 
without regret. Whatever the lies are that you've heard, thanks to the world and the flesh and the devil, whatever the lies are that you've heard, that repentance is foolish and it's all loss and no gain, don't believe it. And, and Paul, Paul drives this home at the very end of our verse, verse 10, because he draws a contrast. At the end of the verse, he says, worldly grief produces death. Here, we've been thinking about godly grief, right? That grief that you feel over your sin because it is ultimately against God. Godly grief is not the only kind of grief there is. There is, Paul says, a worldly grief that you might feel about your own sin. Worldly grief is when you're chiefly bothered by your sin for some reason other than the fact that you've sinned against God, who is your Father. And because there isn't that concern for His glory above all, there it doesn't lead to a turning back to God after all. And if you don't turn back to God... You don't find the life that's to be found in God and only in him. And that, that is something that it makes perfect sense to regret. For the one who doesn't turn back to God, whether they realize it or not, whether they'd admit it or not, it's the most reasonable thing in the world for them to say, what was I thinking? Regret, the regret that comes from not going back to God. Regret is, I mean, even that word, just to say it, to hear it, it's a powerful emotion. To feel some kind of grief and to realize that you blew it, that you missed the chance to do anything about it. How wonderful to think that going back to God, you will never, ever Regret, whatever it costs you. And brothers and sisters, we can be candid here this morning. Going back to God out of a godly grief in genuine repentance, that does not immediately erase all of the memories of all of the things that you did in this life that you do regret. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Every one of us in this room right now is carrying with us some regret. But you will never, ever regret going back to God. And not only that, but because you have gone back to Him in genuine repentance and faith, therefore, you've got the hope now that one day you won't even be plagued by those memories anymore. Salvation, salvation without regret, that's what lies on the other side of genuine repentance. And let, let's press, press that point home as well this morning for all of us here today. Some of you might be feeling, even right now today, that you're waffling, that you're on the fence with respect to some sin 
in your life. And you've come here today convicted by the reality of it. I was going to say you're standing at a crossroads with respect to this sin, but it's not really a crossroads, is it? It's just one road, and you're on it, and you can either keep going or you can turn around. There isn't really a, a, a junction here. Just one road. It's not a matter of turning left or right. Certainly not like Bailey's Crossroad, with three possible lefts and four possible rights, and none of them seem right, and I often pick the wrong one. No, in this case, it's kind of simple. You can either keep going in this sin or you can turn around. And I want to urge you this morning, I want to challenge you this morning, go back to God. You will not regret it. You go back to him in prayer. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Don't have to say much. But you go back to him in prayer to acknowledge the wrong that you've done and to seek his mercy, his forgiveness in Christ, his forgiveness of what you've done, and then to seek his strength, his power too, that you might rise up in new obedience and seek as necessary to make things right after what you've done. You won't regret it. It may be painful. In some ways, it may cost. It may be sacrificial. But you won't regret it. You'll never regret repentance. And if somebody here in this church family can help you take that step, I say let's be that kind of church family. The kind of church body where we encourage one another and pray for one another and walk alongside one another. Sometimes the turning away from sin back to God is a whole lot easier when you've got a fellow believer who can come alongside you and say, you're not crazy, you won't regret this. A fellow believer who can say, this turning around is the wisest thing that you could ever do. I know it's hard, but it's right. Let me help you. Let me pray for you. May we be that kind of church family. May we be brothers and sisters who understand together, who have ears to hear together the sweetness of the word, repentance. As I was saying when we got started today, just the sound of that word elicits a wide variety of reactions, not just among Christians, but in the culture around us. And so the question becomes, who are you going to trust when it comes to the word repentance and the associations that it brings to mind? When it comes to the reality of repentance, what leads to it and where it leads, who are you going to trust? Is repentance a dark word, an offensive word, a comical word? Or is it brilliant and beautiful and weighty because of what leads to it, that godly grief, and because of where it leads, salvation 
without regret. The God of truth says, see what I show you in repentance. Christ himself says, hear what I say to you as I call you to repentance. May it be so. And amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've given us ears to hear. We hear that word repentance. And it is sweet in our ears. Because we know of the godly grief that has led us to turn back to you. And we know of the salvation without regret that we have tasted as those who have come back to you. And at the very same time, we ask you to forgive us that we lose sight of these things. That we can lapse into believing those lies about repentance. Would you forgive us? And remind us today of the truth of it instead that this might be one of our habits, that we might be a people who regularly flex these muscles, these spiritual muscles of turning from sin to go back to you. And may we be a church family in which we encourage one another to that end without regret. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.